description of this advertising. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Every man and woman, when they become sanctified, when they leave their sin, when they are born from above, they enter into a school. It's not simply a holiness school. It is a Holy Spirit school. I'm going to share with you today a book entitled Remarkable Miracles by G.C. Bevington, Guy Bevington. He ministered in the early 1900s in parts of Ohio and Kentucky, particularly in Cincinnati. He writes, 32 years ago I entered this holy school. My first training came during several years in Cincinnati. I was kept in that period of training for what has since developed. At that time, <clears throat> pardon me, though I had no idea what everything was happening and what it meant, after a period of time I began to understand. Now what he's saying is vital. Let's take a minute. When a man or woman gives themselves into the hand of Jesus, they are often then, as was Jesus, taken into the desert. Some of you have been dwelling for quite some time in the desert. It's in the desert where the Lord separates us fully, even emotionally, from the world. It's there that he begins to discipline us, train us, Everything that happens to us is of significance to the Lord God of heaven. There are no accidents. He puts us in very strict training. And some never graduate. Some hunker down in the desert and just try to survive. But the Lord does not send us into the desert so that we can survive. You remember the children of Israel, after 40 years, everyone had died off in the desert, and their children were then brought into the promised land. They could have left Egypt and in a matter of a month been in the promised land. But God knew they were not ready to go to the promised land, and so he had to take them through a series of events to try to prepare them but they refused. They kept going back to their sin. Some of you, as you listen to this broadcast, keep going back to your sin. You love the tomb life. You love the, you love the pain of the darkness, and you call the darkness light, and you call the light darkness. And because of that, you never make any real progress in Jesus Christ. I'll often ask people that I see who are Christians, what has the Lord done for you today? Or what has the Lord said to you today? And they look at me like I'm from Mars. Because they go day after day, year after year, and Jesus doesn't say anything to them. And if you ask, what has Jesus done for you? They will say, I don't know. They're in the desert. They're lost. They've never paid attention to the discipline of God. You cannot grow up in sanctification without suffering. It is suffering that causes a man or a woman to finally say, I must have Jesus. 
I'm going to read for you an incident that this man walked through. It illustrates what God wants to do through you. I could give you many such experiences in my own life. There are things happening even now in my life that I wish I could talk about, but they're not yet completed, and I'm waiting for Jesus to finish what he started. But you will rejoice with me when I share them, those of you who have listened faithfully. Let me share this incident. Brother Bevington writes, I had been having cottage prayer meetings that resulted in much good. I would entreat those who were the most dependable to meet at the mission and have prayer before going on to the cottage meeting. One evening I felt strangely led to be somewhat more aggressive. I said, Brethren, how many of you will clasp hands in a circle and enter into a covenant for at least one soul to be saved tonight. We have seen no one saved or sanctified for several meetings. I thought it time to be more aggressive. Now I'm going to stop and define terms so that you'll understand what's being spoken. There is the mission or the church center, and then they had cottage meetings, which meant home group meetings. And he says, we have seen no one saved or sanctified for several meetings. To be saved means to come to an absolute conviction of my sin and have the supernatural work of God move in my heart to completely deliver me from that sin. Now, to be sanctified means not only have I left my sin but I am now filled with the Holy Spirit. He writes, Several agreed, and when we finished praying, we set off for the meeting. We had a fine time during the meeting, which was held at the home of a sister who was a widow about my age. As the meeting progressed, one brother whispered to me, Where is that soul? Not one sinner was present in the house. He will be here soon, I assured him. The meeting continued under a, a strong anointing of the fire of the Holy Spirit. We had a blessed time amidst much shouting of the praise of God. Again the brother whispered to me, Where is that sinner? I replied, he will be here soon. The leader finally closed the meeting about 10 p.m., and those who had prayed with me earlier began getting their coats and prepared to leave. But I remained seated with my head bowed, praying for that sinner. Soon one who had not been in the circle earlier came to me and asked, Aren't you going home? I felt silenced, and when I did not reply, those speaking to me seemed to draw their own conclusions from knowing that the woman of the house was a single woman and that I was a single man. Glances were exchanged, and they finally all left me sitting there alone with this Christian woman. I felt embarrassed but I was unable to open my mouth and explain why I was still sitting there when all else had gone except the widow and her seven-year-old daughter. I dared not raise my head. All I could do was continue to pray and hold on, saying, Lord, Thou didst impress me to make that vow, and here I am. While I wanted to tell her why I was still waiting there, I could not get my mouth to do so. 
So there we both sat. She become, becoming increasingly disgusted and I perfectly dumb. The clock struck 11 p.m. I said to the Lord, Only one more hour left to our covenant for one soul. The clock struck 11.30. Lord, Lord, just 30 minutes more for that soul. The house stood on the edge of the pavement, and I'd hardly spoken that last statement when there was a rattly bang and the front door burst open. The woman jumped up, screamed, and ran into the kitchen. Through the door fell a drunken man, sprawling out into the floor. As soon as I saw him tremble, a voice said, There is your man. I jumped up and tried to haul him in, but he was so drunk he was about lifeless. The woman, seeing what had happened and being anxious about her carpet, came back from the kitchen and ordered me, Put that man out! Sister, this is an answer to prayer, I said. Sister, get on your knees. Get hold of God. We've only 25 minutes to get this man saved. God can't do anything with a drunkard. Sister, pray, I exhorted her. I dropped on my face, my feet against the door, and I began to intercede with my entire soul. Looking up at the clock, I cried, Oh, God, only 18 minutes left. The woman was becoming quite angry at me. What do you mean by only 18 minutes left? Get hold of God for this man, and I'll explain later, I urged her. Very soon, the drunk raised his head, and he said, Where am I? What am I doing here? You're reaching God here, I told him. God is going to make a sober man out of you. Well, I, I believe he has now, said the man. He raised himself up and he announced, I have religion now. No, you do not, I said. Yes, I have, he insisted as he rubbed his dirty face. Get down now and repent and cry mightily to God for salvation as you've only had the demon drink cast out of you so far. We had some trouble getting him to see, as we saw, but the sister was now working with me, and she and I prayed earnestly to God to show him the truth. God did, and the man began to cry out for mercy. I looked at the clock again, and I said, Lord, Lord, only eleven minutes Father, bring him to terms with you. Take this case on, please. As I lay on my face, pleading with God, the glory of God struck us. The woman began to shout, and when she felt it, she began to dance, and the man jumped up, and he grabbed and carried me all over that room. The assurance came from God that the work was complete at just three minutes before midnight. <laughs> this is the work of the Holy Spirit. It pays to trust God. That man remained sober for the next three years. And then God took him home to heaven. This was the first venture of Guy Bevington along these lines. His wonderful book is full of cases like this where he would not let go. He just prayed until God answered. I have 
dear brothers and sisters at the National Prayer Chapel who are doing just this. I have had so many answers to my prayers. I only pray for one reason, for God to answer. And I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God will come down with his glory and will turn your heart and make you repent. I'm praying that God will come and sanctify you. I'm praying that God will shake you out of that lethargy. I'm praying that God will come upon you in power. It's time to get serious with God. It's time to know that we serve a God who's real, who answers prayer. This is the school of the Holy Spirit where he disciplines us. He trains us that we would be humbled before him and allow the Holy Spirit to come in power and begin to move through us for the salvation of the lost and the dying. It's time to get out of your own stuff. A brother called me last night. He listens to this radio. He's always jumping from this to that, to this to that, always miserable. Never able to settle down and see the glory of God. I said to him, it's time, my brother, to stop saying yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, whipped back and forth. It's time to say, yes, God, go. In my life, I never say yes, no anymore. I say, yes, go. And I pray on that go until Jesus opens the way for me. You ask me, Pastor, are you going to do national radio? Yes, go. I have no doubt he will open the way financially. I have no way that, I have no, no other belief in my heart that God will pay for this radio broadcast month after month, month on this AM station. He paid for December. You realize a week before the end of December, we were $2,300 short of having the money to cover for radio for the month of December. I'm sorry, for the month of January. The money wasn't there. We were $2,300 short. I shared that with you. I invited you to pray. I invited you to give generously of tithes and offerings. Suddenly, a man sends me a $1,000. Another man sends me another large amount. Another man sends $100. A young man waits tables, saving his money so that he can buy a car so he doesn't have to walk everywhere he goes came to me. He handed me a hundred dollars in cash. And he said, Pastor, would you put this on the radio? Such sacrifice brings me to tears, but I know he's in the school of the Holy Spirit. I know God is dealing with his heart. I don't know how to say, yes, no, maybe, maybe not, maybe, maybe not. We'll have to see what God's going to Are you kidding me? I hear the word of God. I say, yes, now go. That's what I'm saying about national radio. How can I afford even to go to FM on, on Wave? It would cost me more than $9,000 a month. That, I don't have anything near that. It would cost a million dollars plus to be national for one year in this nation. But what is a what is a million dollars for the salvation of the lost and dying to turn the heart of America back to Jesus? What's a million dollars? People spend a million dollars on foolish things like airplanes and, and houses and, and cars and saying, oh God. I say yes. Go. And I pray until it's done. I don't back up. I don't apologize. God is going to open 
a sound of righteousness over this nation that will turn the hearts of many in America back to righteousness. Revival is coming to this nation. I rejoice in that. My part is now to do this radio broadcast daily on the AM side. And I stand and wait for God to open Wave a FM for me. And then I stand and wait for the nation to open. My job is to pray. My job is to stand where I'm at and wait on the mighty hand of God to move in the hearts of men and women. Trust Him. I want to read another account. This will encourage your heart as well. He said, I was receiving and distributing clothing to the poor in a suburb of Cincinnati. I noticed that one of our strong members had not been seen for a week or two. She was a poor woman with three children who was struggling just to meet her rent and living expenses. We aided many others in similar circumstances. So I went to her home and I found her doing the washing. I reminded her that several services had passed without her presence, a most unusual occurrence, as she seemed to be loath to give a reason for not being present. I noticed she had quite shabby shoes on, and I gently asked her, Sister, are those the best shoes you have? And blushing, she turned her back on me. I believed I'd guessed correctly. Finally, she said, Brother Bevington, I have to admit they are but I am expecting to get another pair soon. I must keep the children clothed and fed regardless of what my own needs are. Remember, this is during the Depression years. I turned to my room, and that Thursday evening, the power of God came upon me, and I began to plead for a new pair of shoes for this good woman. I prayed earnestly, and I held on for an answer. I looked at my watch, and I suddenly realized I'd been praying for more than ten hours for this woman and for these shoes. I dropped down on my face one more time, and I continued my prayer, and within thirty minutes I saw a pair of ladies' shoes, brand new shoes at that satisfied that all was settled for her new pair of shoes for our regular evangelistic Friday night meeting, which was just over 12 hours away, I went to my breakfast. Later that morning, after being detained with other details, I finally arrived at the mission and went directly into the prayer room. One of the kindergarten teachers came and said to me, There's a lady waiting to see you. I went into the main hall where a woman promptly began her story. Brother Bevington, I bought a pair of shoes this morning, but one is at least two sizes larger than the other one. They look like mates, but they aren't. I only tried on one in the store, and it fit fine, so I bought them. Coming near the mission, I wanted to come in and see the kindergarten children in their class. While waiting to see you, I decided to put my new shoes on to wear them home. But the one is entirely too large. Praise the Lord, I said. I prayed all night for a pair of new shoes. I guess these must be the ones. She frowns silently. And then she said very apologetically, they may be, but it seems a shame to give such a pair of shoes like this to anyone. I don't want to take them back to the store. I didn't ask her why she didn't want to return them, but I think perhaps she was a bit too proud to do so. I told her, the woman who needs these is a poor woman. She can probably put cotton batting in the larger one. The smaller one looks just like her foot. Well, here they are. You take them to her, she said. Oh, I said, no, no. I insist you take her the shoes. I felt she might be able to help this precious woman in other ways. 
I reminded her that she was going to go right past this woman's house on her way to the street car, and there wasn't any reason for her not to deliver them in person. Now, she wasn't happy about my suggestion, but finally she picked up the shoes and started for the woman's house. Arriving there, she introduced herself and said, Brother Bevington sent me here on a rather embarrassing errand. These are for you. And she set the new shoes before the woman, not telling her that one was larger than the other. Now, she rambled on about some other things to keep from speaking of the shoes, and the poor sister stood there thinking to herself, What will I do now? I can't wear these shoes, as my right foot is nearly two sizes smaller than my left foot. And I don't want to tell her that. She's already so embarrassed. The sister concluded that she should just accept the shoes and then try to exchange them. Well, the lady finally took her leave with great relief, and, and she started home. However, her discomfort only grew, and she felt she must return and reveal the size difference to the sister. The poor sister, upon hearing the woman's confession, began to laugh aloud, and she asked, which one is larger? The left one. Now the poor sister laughed more than ever, and finally she caught her breath and she exclaimed, Well, 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 God surely understands all things. My left foot is nearly two sizes larger than my right foot. And here are these wonderful new shoes, just exactly as I needed them. Oh, praise Jesus. Now, I knew nothing of the difference in the size of the sister's feet. But God certainly did. He worked a very exact answer in order to meet my all-night prayer. I read these stories and I smile. There was a time when I began to read these stories and I had not seen the power of God. But God quickly enrolled me in the school of the Holy Spirit. And now I see many such answers to prayer. I must confess that one night of prayer is a is a small price to pray to pay for the dignity of another person for the provision for another person i've often spent days in prayer for another only to see that god answers Sometimes they don't even know I was praying because that's not the important part. But I want to tell you, when you begin to line up with the presence and the power and the will of God, mountains are going to move out of your way. When you begin to stand by faith, and you are utterly given over to God, and you begin to do what he tells you to do, even though it seems utterly foolish, God will begin to do some astonishing things. Glory, 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 in the name of Jesus. this 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. We call it the faith chapter. I don't call it that. I call it the chapter of the Holy Spirit. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain what we do not see. No, let me give you another definition. Faith is a verb 
it is action. It is an act. It is an act based on our belief in Jesus Christ, sustained by confidence in God's word that he hears us and he will act on our behalf. So Abel, by faith, took a lamb and offered it as a burnt offering before the Lord. And the Lord was pleased and received Abel. By faith, Enoch put his belief and his confidence in God's word. And one day they were closer to God's house than to Enoch's house. And God said, why don't you just come on home with me, Enoch? And Enoch moved on to heaven without seeing death. Now Noah, Noah by faith, believed the word of God. And he built an ark. Abraham, he believed God. And he left his land, he left his most of his family. And he went to the land that God was saying, I will give you. By faith, Abram called Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. Has God made you promises? Is God disciplining your life and your heart? Is he trying to teach you how to walk in righteousness? Are you willing to grow up in Jesus and enter into the school of the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, take over my life. I will trust you. It is not by might. It is not by power. It is by my spirit, saith the Lord. Have you grown cynical in your life with Jesus? Do you think if it's going to be, it's up to you? Or are you willing to go to the mat and cry out until God answers? The children of Israel were in the desert. They had the promises of God, but they were not willing to lay on their face and do the work necessary in the prayer closet to gain the victory. Instead, they answered everything according to the flesh. I know of men and women today who say, I love Jesus, I trust Jesus, but they are unwilling to do the prayer closet work in order to hear from God. And so when I say to them, what is the vision that God is giving you? Well, I don't have one. But you're waiting on God? What are you waiting on God for? Why don't you go to God and pray until he gives you a vision of what he wants you to do and where he wants you to go, what he wants you to say? There was a period of seven years in my life where I had no formal public ministry. God had called me out into the desert. But during that desert time, he led people to me precious men and women who stood with my wife and myself and who prayed with us. We gathered in a cottage meeting twice a week to pray. But oh, what did I do in between? I lay on my face before God. For seven years, I lay on my face before God, reading the scriptures, doing the work that he assigned to me day by day. But the majority of my time was simply spent reading the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, some 50 plus times. He said, if you want my power, read my word. And so I read it. 
And then I read it from Genesis to Revelation. And then I read it again. And then I read it again. And I spent days on my face before God. After one of those days on my face, a pastor who was a bit scornful of me saying, you're never going to have a church by praying, Ray. You've got to go out and recruit members. Well, I said, I'll wait until Jesus tells me that. In the meantime, I'm going to pray. Well, he was talking with a friend of his who was another pastor out in California, and he said, you know, I know this crazy man. All he does is pray and read the Bible. He says he's a pastor, but he has no congregation. He just leads a couple of prayer groups. This man in California said, you know what? I want to meet this man. You suppose if I called him and asked if he would spend a day praying with me, do you suppose he'd pray with me? Well, here's his number. Call him. His name is Ray Greenley, Pastor Ray Greenley. Call him. See if he'll pray with you. I got this phone call. And the man on the phone said, my name is Pastor Ray Brigham. Have you heard of me? I said, no, sir, I'm sorry. I've never heard of you. He said, well, I've heard about you. I heard you're a man who prays. Could I come to Washington, D.C.? And would you spend a day praying with me? I said, my brother, you're welcome to come, but I'm, I'm living as a guest in a house. But we have the couch in the living room. You can sleep on that. Sure, I'll be happy to have you come. And he said, well, I'll fly in this next week to Baltimore, and you pick me up at the airport, BWI. And then let's go to your house where you're staying with this family, and, and let's spend the day in prayer. I said, okay, I'll be happy to do that. So Ray Brigham came. Now, some of you may not know the name Ray Brigham, but he was really the one who was the founder of the prayer summits and the very powerful and influential prayer leader who helped establish the National Day of Prayer. He was also involved in the National Prayer Breakfast. Well, Ray Brigham came, and I picked him up in Baltimore and took him back to the humble little house I was staying in, and we had a bedroom that was maybe 10 by 10, tiny, tiny little bedroom. He said, this is fine. We got down on our knees and we began to plead with the Lord. We prayed for Ray. We prayed for his ministry. We prayed that God would open the way before him. And then he said, now let's pray for you. So the other half of the day he spent praying for me. When we were finished with that day of prayer, he said to me, the Lord's telling me that I should take you to New York City, to Times Square, and I should introduce you to Pastor David Wilkerson. Would you be willing to go with me? I said, absolutely, I'll, I'll be happy to. I've always wanted to meet him. He wrote the cross and the switchblade. I've, I've followed his ministry. I know how he was led by the Spirit to go into New York City. I know how he was able to pray through for $15 million so that he could buy the Mark Hallinger Theater and restore it and open the Times Square Church. I'd love to meet this brother. Well, he's a very hard man to meet. He was in very high demand. You don't just walk in and ask to see him. So my wife and I and Ray Brigham got in the car and we drove to New York City. I got to meet Pastor David Wilkerson. And by the glory of God, he became my pastor took me under his wing, took me in front of his congregation and laid hands on me and anointed me with his congregation with hands upstretched, praying a blessing on the National Prayer Chapel that hadn't even been born yet. We had no money. 
We had no ability. We had nothing. He said to me, I'll help you financially. When I left, he shook my hand and put a wad of cash in it. I thought, thank you, Jesus. It was enough to get us home, to repair the car that broke down on the way. Shortly after that, I got a check in the mail for $2,500 when I was in such a crisis. I began to pray and say, Lord, you told this man to financially bless the opening of the National Prayer Chapel. Now, Lord, would you not let him back away from what he promised? And I spent days on my face praying that God would move in this man. I got a phone call. He said, Brother Ray, I want you to come to New York City. I want to talk with you. I want my staff to meet you and your wife. Well, we headed for New York City. We had just enough money to pay the tolls and the gas and no money to come home. So we arrived there and Brother David put us up in a hotel there on one of the busy streets of Manhattan on Broadway. We sat in that luxurious hotel room and we said, what are we going to do? And Jan said, what we always do, we're going to pray. Well, we went to the meetings. Sunday evening, he said, would you be willing to stay over one more night in the hotel and meet me in the morning in the office? I said, yes, certainly. So we stayed one more night. He gave us money for food. We were well taken care of. The next morning, we went to the office. And he wasn't supposed to be there. He was supposed to be at a school up in Pennsylvania. So we walked in and we began to talk with his assistant a wonderful, wonderful godly woman by the name of Barbara. And Barbara passed across her desk an envelope, and just then Pastor David walked in. Barbara said, Brother David, what are you doing here? He said, I had to make sure Pastor Ray and Jan were taken care of. Have you given them the envelope? Yes. And he took my hand and he said, Brother, now this is not mine. This is yours in Jesus. And you're responsible to Jesus for how you use it. I said, My brother, thank you. We headed home and opened the envelope, and inside was $10,000 in cash. We wept. We wept. It was the answer of God. Shortly, we were at the direction of God moved from Baltimore to the Days Inn in Woodbridge, Virginia. Over a period of years, Pastor David contributed more than $150,000 to the opening of the National Prayer Chapel. All of that happened because we prayed. Because we prayed. If you will not pray, God will not answer. The school of the Holy Spirit is about bringing us into situations that are so desperate and so difficult and so painful that our only recourse is to cry out to God or die. And I have learned to pray. To cry out to God.
Now, some of you have not learned to pray because you've never been willing to venture in the school of the Holy Spirit. You have stayed safely on the shore. You have your little job and you have your little paycheck. You have your house and your car. You never had to cry out to God. I didn't have that luxury. I can tell you today, if you had allowed me that luxury, I probably would have settled into a, into a very successful church and I would have missed the whole adventure of the school of the Holy Spirit. When you begin to venture with God, oh, when you begin to venture with God, you better have your seatbelt on and you better have your crash helmet on because God's going to start doing things in your life. How utterly disappointed I would be today if I had settled for my successful church of years gone by. simply been a professional pastor. What an amazing adventure I would have missed. The school of the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you about it. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. These are witnesses that have walked in the school of the Spirit. The 11th chapter of Hebrews. Now we come to the 12th chapter. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and all the sin that so easily entangles. Or I would put it literally, Let us throw off everything that's in our arms, all of the world, all of our security, everything we're holding on to, let's throw it off. And the sin that so easily entangles, the sin that stands around begging us to join, to be a part with them. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The race that is marked out for you, my brother, my sister, is the race of faith and confidence in the Almighty God for the accomplishment of His kingdom work on this earth. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that you will not grow weary, that you will not relax, that you will not kick back and watch the wicked, foolish entertainment of our day. And lose your breath. Lose your heart. The word literally is in lose your breath. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And you've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Oh, my brother, my sister. Where are you stuck today? Where are you stuck today? Where are you being called? What is the Holy Spirit speaking into your heart that you have cast off and refused to walk in? 
What is it that Jesus is saying to you that you've said it's too inconvenient to do that? What is it that he is prompting you, calling you to, and you have resisted? If you continue to resist, it's going to be for you like it was for the children of Israel in the desert. You will die in that desert. You will not be found worthy to enter into the presence of Jesus. I plead with you today. Pray. Stand by faith. Do not waver. Don't play games with your sin. Don't play games with your comfortable comfortable little effeminate worship. But start to shout and praise and start to raise your hands up to heaven. Start to apply all of your might, all of your breath, and crying out to the Lord God of heaven. Some of you think you're going to go to heaven in a rocking chair, just chilling and grooving. You're not going to make it that way, my brother, my sister. You're going to have to sacrifice everything to be where God calls you to be and to do what God calls you to do. And some of you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Instead, you're still walking in your sin and your rebellion and you're calling yourself a Christian. I'm saying, my brother, my sister, will you join the fight today for the kingdom of God? Will you rise up in your spirit and say, Jesus, I must have you. I don't know where the time went today. They're warning me we have only two minutes left. My brother, my sister, I love you in Jesus, and I want to see you come alive in the Spirit. I want, to, I want to urge you to pay whatever price you have to to get to Jesus. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. I invite you to come. We meet at the All Saints Anglican Church. We'll meet this evening. We'll meet this evening, every Tuesday evening, every Sunday at noon, at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Now, go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com.